This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates and this is The Full Story. It began with a statement from Buckingham Palace announcing that the Queen was under medical supervision and her doctors were concerned for her health. All four of her children rushed to Balmoral Castle in Scotland, the Queen's summer home. Prince Charles, who's the heir to the throne, is reported to be with the Queen and other members of the royal family are travelling to her estate in Scotland. And then as evening fell in the UK and in the hours before dawn in Australia, another announcement from the palace stating, the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. Coming to the throne at the age of 25, the Queen steered the monarchy through decades of turbulent change, appointing prime ministers from Winston Churchill to, a few days ago, Liz Truss. In the hours after her passing, the new UK prime minister spoke outside Downing Street. We are all devastated by the news that we have just heard from Balmoral. The death of Her Majesty the Queen is a huge shock to the nation and to the world. Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. Our country has grown and flourished under her reign. And with the passing of the second Elizabethan age, we usher in a new era in the magnificent history of our great country, exactly as Her Majesty would have wished, by saying the words, God save the King. In this special episode, the host of Today in Focus, Noshin Iqbal, and Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee look back on the life of the Queen. And later, we'll hear about Australia's response to her death and the relationship between the monarchy and this country. Today, the passing of the Queen. It's Friday, the 9th of September. memory of Queen Elizabeth II? I was six. I was taken to the mall to stand amongst the crowds, try and squeeze to the front to watch the coronation. And then somebody suddenly invited us inside to some offices upstairs. And there was a television there. The Duke of Norfolk follows Her Majesty into the annex. We will go on ahead of Her Majesty into the Abbey. I'd never seen a television before, like a lot of people in in Britain. So seeing the television was almost as exciting as seeing the procession go by in the flesh. You were a little girl, and as you said, you were in the middle of this incredible occasion. Do you remember what you were thinking at the time or what you thought of the Queen? Little girls think about queens and princesses rather too much, I'm afraid, and she seemed dazzling. And so, as her mother and her sister and the other members of the royal family watched her pass, Her Majesty now moves in her procession down the length of this abbey. Moves 
in her beautiful shimmering gown. And she wears, as we see her now, the imperial state crown. The spectacle of a crown and a gold coach, uh, absolutely transfixing for young children who are imbued with the idea of, of sovereigns, of monarchy, of royalty, of power. But it was the gold coach. I always wanted a little miniature, one of those gold coaches. So, to that stirring music, majesty, splendor and beauty pass from our sight as the queen goes in her lovely robe out of the nave of the abbey. History has been written and sung here today. In this Elizabeth was never supposed to be the one sitting in the gold coach, wearing the crown, on that unseasonably cold, drizzly June day in 1953. She wasn't born for it. She was actually third in line. But then, her uncle, Edward VIII, abdicated. A few hours ago, I discharged my last duty as king and emperor. And from that moment, at the age of 10, Elizabeth knew that one day she would be queen. For the obedient, sensible princess, who neatly lined up her toy ponies outside the nursery door each night, and who was being homeschooled for an aristocratic life as a minor royal. It was a dramatic turn of events. But, nevertheless, that's when her duty began. As she grew up, the emphasis was on service and duty. For example, she underwent the training of a sea ranger. Watch! Shut! Watch is ready for inspection. By the age of 14, she was speaking directly to her future subjects over crackly, wartime radio broadcasts. When peace comes, remember, it will be for us, the children of today, to make the world of tomorrow a better and happier place. My sister is by my side, and we are both going to say goodnight to you. Come on, Margaret. Good night, children. Good night, and good luck to you all. At 21, she married Prince Philip. Newspapers find their boldest headlines as, outside the palace, all-night crowds are rewarded by the bulletin announcing that Her Royal Highness and her son are both doing well. And soon after, they had Charles, the first of their four children. In 1952, Elizabeth and Philip were touring Kenya when she got the news that her father, King George VI, had died much younger than anyone had expected. At the tower, the salute is fired by the Honourable Artillery Company. One reign has ended, a reign begins. So at the age of 25, Princess Elizabeth became Queen Elizabeth II. Her tour of the Commonwealth cancelled. The princess we knew as a girl and watched in the even growth of her stature comes back to meet her ministers as Queen over the great lands that for 15 years acknowledged her father as head. In a way, I didn't have an apprenticeship. My father died much too young, and so it was all a very sudden kind of taking on and making the best job you can. It's a question of maturing into something that one's got used to doing. 
and accepting the fact that here you are and, and it's your fate. Because I think continuity is very important. It is a, a job for life. Elizabeth II was now the head of the monarchy, an institution which, at that time, was still at the centre of British life. She was adored. A third of her subjects believed her to have been chosen directly by God. And Britain itself was still presiding over a vast global empire. But not for long. At the moment of the Queen's coronation, the monarchy was the focal point for a country that still really saw itself as an empire. And the first thing she did was to let the colonies go. Uh, there was no alternative. Attending independence celebrations as one after another peeled away. Nigeria, Ghana, Jamaica, Sudan, country after country that we thought we owned, she suddenly didn't own any longer. Jamaica was the happiest island in all the Caribbean. Kingston was in holiday mood, and the whole population hung out the flags and metaphorically threw its hat in the air. They rejoiced, not that they were parting from Britain, they are firm adherents of the crown, but because Jamaica stood on the threshold of independence. And then it rained. A tropical downpour, as inappropriate as our own deluge on bank holiday. In that period of British decline, the Queen was a kind of cover Everybody could forget that we were declining for as long as we had this glorious monarchy, for as long as we had this commonwealth where she could seem to be still in charge of a shadow empire. She gave everybody the illusion of uh, British power and strength in the world. And as long as she remained queen, people could hold on to the fantasy that nothing very much had changed since the day she was crowned. But of course, everything had changed. As Britain struggled to come to terms with its new standing overseas, domestically, the nation hurtled through times of astonishing societal transformation. The relative wealth and social mobility of the 1950s and 1960s. But we have built more than 300,000 houses, new houses, in 1953. The rise of youth culture. Women's liberation, LGBT rights, promoting homosexuality, the fight for racial equality. We've complained to judges about judges and nothing's been done. Now it's time to do something ourselves. The turmoil of the 1970s and 80s. For the whole labor and trade union movement, come and join us and fight. I'll stand up for something, not just for the miners, for everybody. And you won't let him in your house? Um, as long as I'm alive, he'll never get in my house. Never. Never again. Power Gen will be sold off at the highest price. Is he against selling it off at the highest price? Deindustrialization, privatization, immigration, multiculturalism, the decline of the church in national life. All the while, the Queen remained a constant. It's a very busy life. Yeah. Um, but it How may... big is your palace? My palace is quite large. It has very long corridors to walk down it. Brightly coloured coat, brimmed hat and handbag, inscrutable smile. Are you going to buy Prince William for Christmas? Do I? 
What's he gonna buy, Prince Richard? Well, I don't think I'd better, better say it too loudly, because he might hear me, mightn't he? And never giving much away. The monarchy was always above public mood. It was always in a realm of its own. It paid very little attention to uh, popular opinion. Uh, it stayed outside politics. The Queen's great success was through all of the changes of government and all of the uh, uh, turmoil that there often was. She managed to stay just above it and never to let anyone know. She was incredibly good at staying silent, of zipping her lip and saying nothing about what she thought. Otherwise, I think the monarchy might have collapsed through a lot of the left-right strife of the 70s and 80s. One of the many things that happened over the course of Queen Elizabeth's reign, as we've both said, was the fight for gender equality. And throughout that time, the Queen was one of the most high-profile women in the world. Polly, do you think that being the case, the fact that she was a woman, played a part in her story? The Queen's gender was very important. When she came to the throne, it allowed the fantasy that this was Elizabeth II, who was going to reprise the era of greatness of Elizabeth I, which was, of course, when the empire began to be set up and uh, Britain's trading piratical behaviour around the world was part of our national myth. So the new Elizabethan era was a great trope uh, at the time of her, her coronation. And I think the fact that she was a woman meant that people could somehow accept that she was not political because in those days, you know, women were not supposed to talk about politics much. Uh, and it, the idea that she was a wife and a mother uh, and a woman, I think, helped to keep the monarchy out of politics. And as well as being head of state, the Queen was also the head of her own family. And another thing we did see change over time was this diminishing sense of deference towards monarchy. Is that why cracks increasingly began to emerge in the family itself? One of the big changes, of course, was the arrival of Rupert Murdoch on the scene at the end of the 1960s. Mr Murdoch, IPC announced last July that uh, the Sun and its predecessor, the Herald, had lost £12 million in over eight years. How, in effect, would you change the newspaper and its format to make it pay? Well, we'll change it in, in several ways, but we're not going to disclose exactly what our plans are at the moment. But it'll be a straightforward, honest newspaper. There had been a kind of reverence in the British press, even on the left, towards the monarchy. He broke that. Right. He came from Australia. He thought the monarchy was rubbish. He thought, anyway, they sold newspapers. And he sent in reporters to report any kind of rumour or gossip. And I think that that did throw the whole question of the monarchy more into, uh, into daylight. And we began to hear whispers and stories. At Kennedy Airport, Britain's Princess Margaret and husband Lord Snowden enjoy a reunion following recent rumours that their seven-year-old marriage was less solid than the Rock of Gibraltar. His photography assignments in Japan and New York have kept them apart. One of the most fascinating aspects of the monarchy, and of course one of the most modern aspects of the monarchy, is that nearly all her children have got divorced, sister got divorced, uh, at a time when divorce was not that common. I mean, they were to some extent ahead of the game. The idea that the monarchy was a stable institution uh, has certainly not been true of her own family. And yet somehow she managed to rise above it and to look as if she didn't mind too much. I mean, sometimes she looked as if she was sucking lemons, but she put up with uh, her children's quite chaotic 
married and divorcing lives. That was modernising because I think for a lot of families in the country went through the same thing. Uh, parents who didn't support divorce found their children divorcing or indeed living together, not married. So that to some extent, the royal family has represented the social turmoil and change and progress in some ways, the freedom, new freedoms that the rest of the country enjoys. The Queen may have managed to rise above it most of the time, but very occasionally she did reveal herself to be really struggling. No more so than in 1992, her Annus Horribilis, as she called it. Margaret divorced, and Charles and Andrew announced the end of their marriages too. With uh, permission, Madam Speaker, I wish to inform the House that Buckingham Palace are at this moment issuing the following statement. It reads as follows. It is announced from Buckingham Palace that with regret, the Prince and Princess of Wales have decided to separate. This decision has been reached amicably and they will both continue to participate fully in the upbringing of their children. Deference by this point had disappeared. Newspapers were printing stories about the Queen's private wealth and questioning whether misbehaving royals deserved their taxpayer funding. And then the Queen had to watch, standing in the rain, crying, as part of Windsor Castle burned down. She gave a speech at the end of that year, appealing for understanding, that was, for her, remarkably candid. 1992 is not a year on which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure. I sometimes wonder how future generations will judge the events of this tumultuous year. I dare say that history will take a slightly more moderate view than that of some contemporary commentators. But days later, John Major announced that the monarchy would be reformed, the Queen would pay income tax, and members of the extended royal family would no longer receive public funding. It was a dramatic low point, the mark of an irreversible shift in the relationship between subjects and sovereign. Then, five years later, things got lower still. Normal programming has been suspended, and we now join Martin Lewis in the news studio. This is BBC Television from London. Diana, Princess of Wales, has died after a car crash in Paris. The French government announced her death just before five o'clock this morning. Buckingham Palace confirmed the news shortly afterwards. Normal programmes have been suspended while we bring you the latest developments throughout the morning. After the shocking news of Diana's death, the Queen found herself caught in a rare moment of public unpopularity. The one time she got it badly wrong was after the death of Diana. The royal family utterly misunderstood the powerful emotions people felt in the country and powerful anger against the royal family that they felt had turned against Diana, had turned her out, had made her life impossible. And they fell silent. They did the wrong thing. It took Tony Blair to step forward, tell them what to do. Uh, that was a very important moment because I don't think any British Prime Minister at that point wanted to see the monarchy fall over. They didn't know what would replace it, what would happen next, what it would lead to. Uh, and he stabilised it by forcing them to face up to this emotional moment. And so, as you say, after a lot of pressure... 
not just from politicians, but also from the press. The Sun's headline was, show us that you care. The Queen did eventually give a televised address to the nation the day before Diana's funeral. What I say to you now, as your Queen and as a grandmother, I say from my heart. First, I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh, nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. I admired and respected her for her energy and commitment to others, and especially for her devotion to her two boys. Do you think we can learn anything about her from the way all of that unfolded? We never knew the Queen. Of course we didn't. We had to rely on fantasists of the Crown or Majesty magazine or the Sun, rumour and gossip. Uh, Each of us could think our own thoughts about what sort of person she was. She was a cipher for anybody's emotions, for anybody's wish, for anybody's idea of what a monarch should be. Keeping quiet was her great strength. The myth is that she was quite chilly, that she was a cold mother, that she was not warm and uh, that she froze out Diana, that she froze out everybody, that she lived in an isolated zone where being monarch was really the whole of her life. We don't know if that's true. We have no idea. But it was quite useful in a way, this idea, rather like Elizabeth I, of a figurehead more than she was a human was perhaps necessary. Diana's death was perhaps the most devastating moment in the recent history of the monarchy. But it was by no means the last time the Queen would have to deal with family crises. When Harry and Meghan split away, the Queen and the palace didn't really seem to know how to respond. A little over an hour ago, a statement was released on behalf of the Queen. It was very light on detail. It said, The whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Harry, Meghan and Archie will always be much-loved family members. But worst of all, we're told, we don't know if it was true, that her favourite son was Andrew. And Andrew has been the disaster in the family all the way through. An American woman has filed a civil lawsuit in New York accusing Prince Andrew of sexual abuse. In a statement, Virginia Dufresne claims she was trafficked to the prince by the convicted paedophile Jeffrey Epstein when she was 17. The Duke of York has consistently denied the allegations. We've talked about the way the Queen managed to stay out of a great deal of societal change and political turmoil throughout her reign. And Polly, you've argued that by doing this, she's preserved the status of the monarchy, maybe even saved it. But arguably, the worst of the turmoil was saved till last. In short succession, we had two hugely divisive referendums. The first, the Scottish independence referendum, was an existential question about Britain itself. And the second, Brexit, will probably shape the country for decades. Do you think she managed to continue to stay out of things? The mystery of the monarchy 
depends on never knowing what they think about the political events of the day. In Scotland, we got a little hint when David Cameron let loose that the Queen had purred when she heard the result that Scotland was not, for the time being, going to become independent. And one can believe that because the royal family have always passionately loved Balmoral and Scottishness. And I think Scotland going in her lifetime would have been a heartbreak for her. And the great drama of uh, the Brexit referendum, we were never allowed to know what she thought. The Sun on its front page claimed that the Queen backs Brexit. Nobody really knew. Of course, the Sun was rapidly Brexit and they would want to claim her. And uh, the Queen was in no position to confirm or deny it. Next, Australia's response to the passing of the Queen and the relationship between the monarchy and this country. On Friday morning, as leaders worldwide paid their respects, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese addressed the nation from Canberra. Her Majesty celebrated our good times and she stood with us during trials and hardships. Happy and glorious, but steadfast too. In particular, we recall the sympathy and personal kindness she extended to Australians afflicted by tragedy and disaster from floods and bushfires to wars and a pandemic. Her words and presence were a source of comfort, hope and solace for millions of Australians. Queen Elizabeth II has been a wise and encouraging guide, always wanting the best for our nation and greeting each change with understanding, good grace and an abiding faith in the Australian people's judgment. Former Prime Ministers also added their voice to the tributes. On the ABC, Kevin Rudd spoke about the Queen's impact on him and the Australian public. It's that sense of duty and that sense of, as it were, solidity during times of national crisis, which spoke volumes across the decades to Australians, whether they were Republicans or monarchists. Uh, there's a great sense of her being, you know, the country's, you know, kind of, or the Commonwealth's kind of nana figure. Uh, and that's why I think everyone feels something when we have the passing of such a significant and devoted person. He also highlighted the Queen's sense of humour. I certainly remember being at um, Buckingham Palace when Therese asked where the corgis were and then with a flash of the wrist a button was pushed and this stampede of corgis <laughs> arrived in the, in the dining room and almost wrecked the place. And, uh, and Therese pointed to one of the corgis and said, this one looks unlike the others. To which Her Majesty looked down, looked back at Therese and said, yes, and her mother was a complete trollop. <laughs> so she, she had a really good sense of humour. Former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull paid a heartfelt tribute. Last night, as we were filled with such dread, because it was obvious that things would turn very bad, I took the portrait of the Queen out and set it up we just thought, what an amazing life. What amazing leadership. And it is the end of an era. And let's hope that the future after the Queen's passing 
is one where we will have leadership as dedicated and selfless as she has shown. Queen Elizabeth II was the only reigning monarch to visit Australia. And in his address, Anthony Albanese spoke about Australia's reception of the Queen over the years. She graced us on 16 occasions during her reign, travelling to every state and territory across our vast continent. Her first visit with Philip began on the 3rd of February 1954, just eight months after her coronation. It was the biggest single event ever organised in Australia and it remains a defining moment in our nation's history. Some 7 million Australians, or 70% of our population at the time, turned out to catch a glimpse of the young Queen passing by. It is the 3rd of February, 1954. A day of high summer and of high history for Australia. There'll be no work done today in Sydney. A million of us are on the move swarming into the streets like bees in the sun, for a queen is coming. A queen we have never seen. I want to tell you all how happy I am to be amongst you and how much I look forward to my journey through Australia. But the queen was not greeted warmly by all. For some, she symbolises the ongoing colonisation of this country. And during her visit in 2000, the Queen was confronted by an Aboriginal protester in the outback New South Wales town of Burke, demanding an apology. Now, focus is turning to what happens next. Charles, heir to the throne since he was three, became king immediately after the death of his mother. But his official coronation is not likely to take place for several months. In Australia, federal parliament will be suspended for at least 15 days and gun salutes arranged around the country. Prime Minister Albanese and Governor-General David Hurley will travel to London in coming days, where they'll meet with King Charles and attend the Queen's funeral at Westminster Abbey to be held 10 days after her death. On their return from London, Parliament House in Canberra will host a national memorial service, which will be marked as a national day of mourning. In the long term, this moment could signal a shift in Australia's relationship with the monarchy. On Friday, Greens leader Adam Bandt called for Australia to become a republic. But Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says that question can wait. Oh, today's not a day to talk about that. Today's a day uh, for one issue and one issue only, which is to pay tribute uh, to Queen Elizabeth II and to uh, give our thanks uh, for her service uh, to our country, to the Commonwealth, to her family and her extraordinary uh, contribution uh, to our nation. That's it for today. This episode featured Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee speaking to Noshin Iqbal, one of the hosts of Today in Focus, our global news podcast. 
You can follow more on this story and read The Guardian's live blog and extensive coverage on the passing of Queen Elizabeth II at theguardian.com. This episode was produced by Joshua Kelly. Sound design is by Axel Cucutier. The executive producer of Today in Focus is Phil Maynard. Additional production on this episode by Miles Martignoni and Karishma Luthria. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates and we will be back with a regular episode of Full Story on Monday. Thank you.